the objective of the TTM2 trial. This topic is blowing up. There was no control group. I dissuade that strongly. In Philadelphia, most of my patients post-arrest don't look like this. I would like to live in those neighborhoods. Welcome to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We are so happy that you are joining us here on CCPM for this podcast. Welcome to all of our usual subscribers and welcome to those of you who are new listening for the first time here to CCPEM. We are so excited to welcome you to the podcast as, as many of you now know, CCPEM has moved to the foam world. Since some of you are listening for the first time, I wanna take just a minute or two to introduce you to us for those who don't know us. Recall that CCPEM actually started back in 2011, so about a decade ago. Initially, we were EMRAP Critical Care Edition, and after about one to two years, we then moved over to the CCPEM platform. And overall, this podcast is really focused on the intersection of emergency medicine and critical care. And our primary mission here is to really educate emergency medicine, critical care, and acute care providers on core concepts, along with cutting edge trends in the care of the critically ill ED patient. Each month, you can expect to have about two podcasts that are about 20 to 30 minutes in length and absolutely focused on a clinically relevant topic that pertains to the care of critically ill patients. Now, to that end, if you are listening and you do want to earn CME for the podcast, there is an opportunity to sign up for a CME subscription where you can track your annual CME. We will be focusing several episodes on some of the core CME content, such as neurology, neurocritical care. But having said that, the podcast is now free to everyone. But if you would like CME, there is a slight subscription fee for that. Now, after that introduction... I certainly can't do this alone. In fact, I have three phenomenal co-stars here on CCPEM, Drs. Peter W., Rob Rodriguez, and John Greenwood. Gentlemen, for those listening to the podcast here for the first time, perhaps you can say a few words about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate this. We are passionate about educating providers on this intersection between emergency medicine and critical care. My training's in both emergency medicine and pulmonary critical care. I'm fellowship trained. I'm at LSU in New Orleans at the residual hospital of what used to be Charity Hospital, the oldest continually operating hospital since 1736. And I'm practicing emergency medicine for about 31 years and critical care for about 25 of those. I'm currently the chief experience officer at LSU and still working in the emergency department. Outstanding, Peter. Rob? Yeah, thanks, Mike. And I agree. We've loved the decade of CCPEM and I'm happy to be continuing in this new format. I am trained in emergency medicine, internal medicine, and critical care. And I am a professor of emergency medicine with UCSF. I do my emergency medicine in the emergency department at San Francisco General Hospital in San Francisco, of course. And I do my critical care across the Bay at Highland Hospital. And I've been doing both since I left fellowship about really getting old now, but about 25 years ago, I guess. So yeah, we've been doing this a long time and just great to be here. Outstanding, Rob and John. 
Hey everyone. So I am, as you would say, the new kid on the block. <laughs> the smart guy. Uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to join this group. I learned so much every single time we do a podcast together. I finished fellowship now almost six to seven years now. I did my emergency medicine training and critical care medicine fellowship at University of Maryland. And in fact, I was in the second class of EM residency trained graduates who was able to sit for the written board. So that was a pretty cool kind of experience outside of the traditional IM critical care pathway. I was able to join this group. And so my interests largely focus on cardiac critical care. So I am an intensivist and an emergency physician at the University of Pennsylvania. I work in the emergency department where I do a lot of teaching on cardiac critical care related issues to the emergency medicine trainees there, as well as the medical students. And I work in our cardiac surgery intensive care unit, where it's a pretty high volume referral center, where we manage a lot of mechanical circulatory support, a lot of transfers for cardiac related critical illnesses. So we receive a lot of patients from the community hospitals at our referral center. And so it's really a lot of fun to kind of see the evolution of critical care medicine, cardiac critical care, and kind of the gaps and needs that are out there in the community. So one of the things that I really like to try to bring in is certainly, you know, when to think about bringing your patient over to our hospital or a tertiary care hospital if you're working out in the community. So this has been a lot of fun and look forward to more podcasting on the phone platform. Absolutely. And you all bring so much robust experience that I think that's one of the four of us. It's our favorite part. I think of the podcast is we have this discussion. You're not hearing just me lecture on a topic, this interface, and we all bring different aspects of the experience really across the U.S. in terms of caring for these patients in our emergency department. So we are so happy, so excited that you are joining us and can't wait to continue this journey throughout the remainder of 2021 and into 2022 together. Well, let's get to the topic at hand for this podcast. And quite honestly, I don't think we could get actually more cutting edge or hot off the press in terms of what we want to discuss this podcast. And that's the recently published TTM2 trial in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, for those of you that have been longtime listeners to the podcast, you know that over the years, we do have episodes focused on post-cardiac arrest care, as well as TTM. In fact, a few months ago in the fall, right around the holiday time, we reviewed the latest 2020 update from the American Heart Association on post-arrest care in which the AHA recommends as a class one intervention initiating TTM on all adult patients with ROSC following out of hospital cardiac arrest who remain comatose and unable to follow commands. And now we've got perhaps some controversy injected into that recommendation with the TTM2 trial. So John, I'm going to turn things over to you first, kind of give us the background and really what was the objective of the TTM2 trial. Oh, absolutely. So this is a really important topic. Couldn't get much more critical care than post-cardiac arrest. There's probably about 100 papers out, starting from mechanistic studies to clinical studies, about the effectiveness of targeted temperature management. However, over the past couple of years, that's been brought into question. So current guidelines from the AHA recommend TTM, as Mike said, as a class one intervention for adult patients who are comatose or unable to follow commands after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So these guidelines recommend a constant temperature between 32 and 36 degrees and state basically it's reasonable to maintain TTM for about 24 hours after reaching targeted temperature. And that if you remember 
that 36 degree temperature is from the TTM1 trial that was published a few years back now. The evidence for this recommendation began with two trials that were published in New England Journal. Man, that was about 20, oof, 23 years ago, 2002, that Oh man, well, whatever, 20 years ago that demonstrated improved neurologic outcome if out of hospital cardiac arrest patients who had shockable rhythm were cooled to 33 degrees. And those trials were based out of Australia, the HACA trial. The initial TTM trial in 2013 compared TTM at 33 degrees with 36 degrees Celsius, didn't demonstrate an actual dose effect. So more recently, I think this was an exciting trial, the Hyperion trial that we talked about back in October of 2019, demonstrated improved neurologic outcome for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythm who received TTM to 33 degrees compared to 37 degrees. So these were the non-shockable patients. I think a lot of these patients who we see in the U.S., Despite these trials, the overall level of evidence supporting current recommendations is felt to be of low certainty. So as fever really may be a risk factor for poor neurologic outcome following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it's uncertain if there's a causal relationship in the clinical model. So the objective here was to assess the beneficial and harmful effects of therapeutic hypothermia as compared with normothermia and fever prevention and early treatment for those patients after cardiac arrest. So that was the goal of this trial that was a little bit different from the TTM1 to a target of 36 versus 33. So Peter, maybe walk us through the study, who they included, excluded, and that sort of thing. Yeah, you got it, John. I think you set it up well. So for the study, it's an international investigator-initiated superiority trial. It's actually performed in 61 centers in 14 countries. So let's talk about the patients. Who is included? This would be adults greater than or equal to 18 years of age. They were admitted to the hospital after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of a presumed cardiac or an unknown cause. Any initial rhythm got you in the door more than 20 consecutive minutes of ROSC. So it wasn't coming, going, coming, going. You had to have at least 20 consecutive minutes of spontaneous circulation and return of it. The patient had to remain unconscious and unable to follow verbal commands. Who was excluded from this? The interval from ROSC to screening for enrollment greater than 180 minutes. So you're out of the picture if it's more than three hours, you weren't rolled into the study. That makes good sense. If it was an unwitnessed cardiac arrest with asystole as the initial rhythm, again, you were out of the picture for enrollment. And if there were limitations in care, so if we couldn't give you all the care, that was standard. Now, the trial intervention period was 40 hours. So they're looking for 40 consecutive hours. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one ratio. So for hypothermia, they were immediately cooled to 33 degrees Celsius. They used cold IV fluids, surface device, or intravascular devices. But again, the goal in that group was 33 degrees. That was maintained for 28 hours. The patient was then rewarmed to 37 in hourly increments. So the other group was the normothermia group. 
they maintain temperatures of 37.5 Celsius or less. If the temperature reached greater than 37.8, the cooling with surface or intravascular devices was initiated to a target temperature of 37.5 Celsius. So no active warming or cooling was initiated for patients who had a spontaneous temperature less than 37.8. So after the 40-hour intervention period for the normotherapy, normothermia group, a temperature target of 36.5 to 37.7 was maintained for 72 hours, both groups. So neuroprognostication. This was performed at 96 hours after randomization or later. The physician was unaware of the intervention assignments, so they were blinded to that. All decisions about withdrawal of care were at the discretion of the treating physician. So let's look at what the primary outcome was. That was really all-cause mortality at six months. Some secondary outcomes, poor functional outcome at six months. So we have to look at that. The number of days alive and out of the hospital until 180 days, and then health-related quality of life. Adverse events, we want to consider pneumonia, sepsis, bleeding, and arrhythmia resulting in hemodynamic compromise. So what was the statistical analysis? Investigators hypothesized that the incidence of death at six months would be lower in the hypothermia group. So if we cooled you to 33, we thought, in fact, the incidence of death for the study purposes would be lower at six months. They estimated a sample size of 1,862 patients needed to provide 90% power to detect a 15% relative reduction in death in the hypothermia group. So Rob, what were the results of this well-designed study? Yeah, Peter, this was a very well-designed study, and they enrolled 1,861 patients in this intention-to-treat study. Half of them, 930 patients received hypothermia, 931 patients received normothermia, and the baseline characteristics between the two groups were very evenly matched and very well balanced. So in terms of the hypothermia group, the median time from start of the intervention until a temperature of 34 degrees was reached was about three hours, which is very good, really pretty quick to cool these patients. Of note, 6% of this hypothermia group had to be rewarmed before completion of the 40-hour intervention period because of cardiovascular instability and arrhythmias. 95% of this hypothermia group received cooling with a device. 70% of the time that was with surface cooling and 30% of the time that was with intravascular cooling. Now, moving on to the normothermia group, notably, nearly half or, or about 46% of this group of patients received cooling at some point in time. And the types of cooling they used were similar. Again, 69% received surface cooling and 31% of those who were cooled received intravascular cooling. In terms of the primary outcome, the all-cause mortality at six months there was no difference at all. The hypothermia group had 50% survival, 55% mortality, and the normothermia group had 48% mortality at six months. 
So the relative risk with hypothermia was 1.04 with a confidence interval that was 0.94 to 1.14. So really no statistical significance at all, no statistical difference at all. And very important, this primary outcome, there were no differences. It was consistent across all subgroups, including gender, age, initial rhythm, and whether shock was present at the time of admission. In terms of the other secondary outcomes, the secondary outcome of poor functional outcome at six months, the hypothermia group was 55% and the normothermia group was 55%. So again, there was no difference at all. Relative risk was of course one. So there was no difference at all in terms of this secondary outcome. Other secondary outcomes, health-related quality of life, were similar between groups. In terms of adverse events, there were a little bit higher rate of arrhythmias in the hypothermia group at 24% as compared to 17% in the normothermia group. And there was no difference in terms of pneumonia, sepsis, or bleeding between the two groups. So... In summary, no difference in primary outcomes, no difference in secondary outcomes between the two groups. Thanks, Rob. That was wonderful. The three of you taking us through the background, the objective, the study itself, and here the results. Let me just touch on a few limitations that the authors certainly identified in terms of their paper. First one, obviously non-blinding, and it's pretty hard to blind treating clinicians to when someone's being cooled versus necessarily not be cooled or more reactive TTM. Also importantly, there was no control group. And so with respect to actually targeted temperature management, know that as Rob said, 46% of people in the normothermia group actually had a device used to bring them down because they hit that threshold of 37.8. So they did have targeted temperature management. There wasn't a control group where no TTM was performed. This is pertaining to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest didn't include any in-hospital cardiac arrest patients where they are a different patient population. And then the authors admit that some of their ICU care, namely the sedation and paralysis included in the protocol, were a little bit different and may not necessarily be either representative or generalizable to common clinical practice. I think some things that we were talking about offline, even ahead of our recording of this discussion, is that It's pretty impressive survival rates for this particular study overall, and perhaps there may be some details buried in the patients they enrolled. So with that, what I want to turn to is each of you for your interpretation, your thoughts overall on TTM, and maybe talk me out of walking into my next shift tomorrow in the ED and saying, you know what, let's just take people to 37.5, keep them there, and we're good. So John, I'm going to start with you. Thoughts, deeper dive into the literature itself or into the study. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So let's start with this. And guys, I want you to kind of think to your usual patient population comes in post-cardiac arrest, as well as to our audience, right? So if you look at the table one here of this trial, I'm just going to read some of the demographics here. So age 64, I think that's common, maybe a few more male, but, and by the way, these were all really well matched, 80% male. Shockable rhythm, 72 to 75% of these patients had a shockable rhythm. Approximately 80% of these patients received bystander CPR. 30% 
of these patients required vasopressors post-arrest 20 minutes after sustained ROS, 30%. Median time to ROS was 25 minutes. Lactate was less than six. And then the STEMI rate was 40%. So I don't know. What do you guys think about this patient population? I'll kick this around. Rob, Peter, Mike, does this sound to you like uh, patients in New Orleans, San Francisco, Baltimore? I can say that in Philadelphia, most of my patients post-arrest don't look like this. Yeah, I'll start. I think that that's certainly a very high survival rate and very high rates of good outcomes, certainly higher levels of bystander CPR than we are used to in San Francisco, and similarly, higher rates of STEMI. So I don't know. This topic is blowing up in terms of research. So we're part of the ice cap study as I don't know if, if any of you at your sites are involved in that study. And suffice it to say that there are a lot of groups in the US and internationally across the world that are looking at this particular topic. So this particular paper doesn't necessarily change my practice. I think we're going to have to wait a few years before the other trials are completed. Suffice it to say, again, that there are several trials that are looking at what particular temperature makes sense. And so I think where we're headed is probably a temperature in the 36 degree range and probably not 33 or 34 degrees. The signal from most of the research in this regard, I believe, is headed in that direction. So Bottom line is, I don't know where this paper takes us. It's clear that we need to prevent fever, and 37.5 is a cutoff that they've used in this study. But I think we're a few years out before having a final consensus evidence-based target temperature. Great points, Rob. Peter, generalizable to your patient population? Yeah, this is a very different population than our New Orleans folks. It's hard to say that somebody with ROSC is in a well ROSC group, right? <laughs> that they're particularly healthy, but they're certainly less sick than my folks are. More STEMI, less cardiogenic shock, less utilization of vasopressors, which across the board is typically 50%. And they had a heck of a lot more bystander CPR. I would like to live in those neighborhoods, 14 countries, 61 centers. It's an interesting group of patients, but not terribly relatable to mine. I think I'd have to agree with all of that. Uh, John, I'm not too far south of you in Baltimore from Philly. And looking at our cardiac arrest numbers every month, we definitely have a greater percentage of non-shockable rhythms. We do not have that many STEMIs as an underlying etiology. Usually our patients that we get back have a lactate much higher than six than these folks had and frequently do use a lot more vasopressors. So I think you bring up a really important point. While the characteristics of the two groups are balanced and essentially well randomized, not sure that it is those same patients that we take care of day in and day out that present with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah. And so getting back to your original question, you're going into a shift and taking care of a patient Here's my takeaway from this trial is that for the very well patient post-cardiac arrest who meets maybe some or a lot of these kind of demographic characteristics, 
perhaps you can target a little bit of a higher temperature for this patient and focus on fever control. But for most of the patients that I'm taking care of who are really sick and requiring a lot of support or a lot of resuscitation, I don't know that this trial applies to them. And I think this is getting to a really important question. I think what this trial did was maybe gave us an idea of which patients can tolerate a little bit of a higher temperature, but the data for 33 degrees is still really strong. And so for those with a higher degree of brain injury or critical illness after arrest, I don't think this trial applies to them. And so I don't think it changes my practice just yet. Great, great points, John. Let me turn to Peter and then Rob for your thoughts overall on this article. So from my perspective, it doesn't change a whole heck of a lot to what I'm doing. I tend to make my cardiac arrest patients with ROSC naked to begin with and let them kind of settle out in hopes that they're 36 and maybe a little bit below just by usual care. And I'm intentional about keeping them swathed and that's about it which all of our nursing staff wants to cover everybody else up and and get blankets. And I dissuade that strongly. And again, I think this goes along with the picture of reducing secondary harm to our patients, both with reducing temperatures, elevating head of the bed, and being clever with our vent management while we're letting these people recover. I agree. I think that in terms of my personal management, everything has to flow through your institution. And so I just continue to manage my post-cardiac arrest patients according to my institutions, my EDs and my ICUs protocols. I think that they're very reasonable as they currently stand. So I really don't veer from those protocols right now. I do think that, again, we're going to have a lot more evidence in the next three to four years about this particular topic, and those protocols may be revised. Uh, Yeah, so that's sort of my take. Well, gentlemen, this has been an exceedingly helpful discussion on a hot topic, just literally hot off the press within the last two weeks, and lots of folks are talking about this. So I think this couldn't be a better article to start off this discussion as we move CCPEM to the phone platform, and welcome to all of our new listeners there. We are so excited that you're joining the podcast. If you need to shoot us an email, have a follow-up question, please do so through our website, how you got to us, ccpem.blog. There will be show notes with this particular podcast, just a summary of the article itself that you can also review. And with that, we're going to close out this podcast here at the beginning of July, and we will look forward to talking to you next time here on CCPEM. Bye for now.